Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Please turn to Hosea. We're in the Old Testament once more as we're continuing our journey through the Old Testament. And if you don't know where Hosea is, uh, basically you can just kind of go, if you start finding some of the bigger books like Daniel or Ezekiel, just go to the right. And uh, it's actually the next book after um, Daniel. So what we're doing here is we're beginning, we're beginning, we're actually, um, you know, we've been traveling through the Old Testament and uh, taking breaks to go back into the New Testament like we did with the book of Hebrews. Um, but as we came to this portion of the Old Testament, this is a major division in the Old Testament. This is beginning a portion, the last portion of Old Testament Scripture known as the Minor Prophets. And uh, why are they called minor versus major? Well, basically the only reason why they're called Minor Prophets is the length of their prophecies, the length of their books. Um, there's nothing minor about these prophets. Uh, they're very significant uh, people, and they're very significant, these books that we'll be looking at. And uh, the minor prophets, they're not in chronological order. For example, the book of Amos. Uh, Amos was older than Hosea, and he started his ministry before Hosea. Uh, but uh, uh, Hosea is placed before it. Uh, the only reason I can think of is because it's the longest of the, of the minor prophet books. Um, and so that's probably it. But like I said, there's nothing minor about the book of Hosea. So beginning with chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Who was Hosea? Well, his name means salvation. Uh, we know nothing about his father, Biri, other than what we know is that he was just the son of Biri. Uh, it is believed that Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of, of Israel, which is also known as Ephraim. Uh, this would be after the true tri- the, the the nation of Israel basically had a had a civil war and and the two uh, southern tribes uh, Judah and Benjamin stayed you know as part of Judah known as Judah and the ten northern tribes became known as Israel or Ephraim as I mentioned earlier and so it's believed that Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel and his prophecies for the most part are directed to uh, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, it says here that he lived and ministered in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, uh, if you're, some of your Bibles might, I don't know if it says it right there, but Jeroboam, there's a Jeroboam 1 and a Jeroboam 2 in the Old Testament. This is Jeroboam 2. Uh, there's, so there's two Jeroboams in the Old Testament. The first one was a guy by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he was the first king of the northern ten tribes of Israel. And he set up golden calves in both ends of his kingdom. He set up a golden calf in Dan in the north end of his kingdom and in Bethel in the southern end of his kingdom. And the reason why he did that is because he was afraid that the Jews, the Hebrews, they would go back down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple there. And he was afraid that their loyalties were going to be drawn towards Rehoboam, the king of the south, and also towards Jerusalem and the temple. And so he said, I'll have to come up with some plan. So he came up with this idea that they they would not have to go down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. They could worship the Lord at Dan or Bethel at these calves that he had had set up there. And uh, 
It's interesting. Uh, he is uh, very notorious in Scripture because just about every other, in fact, every other king of Israel that succeeded him was judged according to, uh, it says, if, if whether or not they followed in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. So he had set a precedent, and all the other kings were measured by that precedent. Well, this is Jeroboam, the son of Joash. In some of your Bibles, he might be known as Jehoash. Spelled, there's two different spellings of it. But he was the third in the line of descendants of Jehu, one of the kings of Israel. And that will come into significance a little bit later. Um, Jeroboam, uh, the, Jeroboam II, or Jeroboam, the son of Joash, he reigned for 41 years over Israel. And he was very victorious uh, in battle against the Syrians. Uh, the Syrians and others had captured land of Israel and Judah. In these battles, he was able to reclaim land of Israel that had been captured in prior battles. So he had expanded the territory of Israel. Under Jeroboam, the kingdom of Israel was the most prosperous it had ever been. But while there was outward prosperity and outward growth, inwardly, the people were morally bankrupt and they were spiritually deprived. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel um, had been for 200 years, it was about 200 years since Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, ruled, uh, had it been sinking faster and faster into decline. It just was declining. It had sunk down into spiritual adultery. It had rampant immorality. It had rampant corruption. And the religious life of the people in this northern kingdom of Israel. It was basically merely, for the most part, an external uh, show of formality. Inwardly, the people had adopted and absorbed the idolatry of all these nations that God had driven out of that land. Outwardly, they had observed the new moons, the feasts, the Sabbaths, but they also worshipped Baal. And the worship of Baal included ritual prostitution. Uh, And so really, you know... When you looked at these people in the northern kingdom of Israel, they didn't look like anybody else. I mean, they didn't stand out from among the nations around them. They looked just like everybody else around them. Well, it was against this backdrop that the Lord called Hosea to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. And if you've ever read the book of Hosea, um, you know, some books are really easy to diagram and outline. Hosea's isn't. It's, it's a little bit more difficult to outline. Also, you get into books like Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah, it's really, it's beautiful the way it's written. It's just, he's just a master of words. There's so much, there's Hebrew poetry in there, and it's, it's really picturesque. You read through the book of Hosea, and it is just blunt. It's abrupt. It's just, and, and what you get is you get a real sense of passion and you also get a sense that these words are spoken through sobs and tears of a forsaken husband. Like the prophet Ezekiel, Hosea experienced firsthand in his own life how God, the husband of the nation of Israel, felt by being forsaken by them. And we'll see this. In verse uh, 2 it says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now there's three views of Hosea amongst different scholars. One is that this is an allegory. 
that, that this is just a story made up to prove a point. It didn't really happen. God didn't really tell Hosea to marry a prostitute. After all, why would a holy God tell one of his prophets to go marry a prostitute? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It, let, me, let me just tell you this. If it's too hard of a concept to wrap your brain around, what this really is, it's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of, you know, how God could love you and I, who are sinners, who don't, we don't deserve his love, and yet he married us. We're the bride of Christ. And so if you have a hard time wrapping your, your brain around that, um, it's just a picture of salvation. Well, you can see I don't believe it's an allegory. I believe it's a literal uh, a literal, I take a literal view of it. So there's two other views. And the other one was that Gomer was first chased, but then later on became an adulteress. And, you know, it's possible. The last view is that Gary, uh, Gomer was a prostitute and that Hosea was told to marry her. And in reading the scripture, this is exactly, it fits the literal reading of the passage. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel, it was rampant with sexual immorality. Uh, it could very be that that was just the overall the way things were in that culture there. And if that's the case, and I believe that is the case, what a picture of obedience that would be on the part of Hosea. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? Go marry a prostitute. Wow. Why did God tell Hosea to marry a prostitute? Again, it's a picture of salvation, but it was also a picture of God's marriage to Israel. You know, they had prostituted themselves with all these false gods of the nations around them. And uh, so Hosea, man, in obedience to the Lord, he marries Gomer. We don't know anything else about Gomer other than her name. And she conceives and has a son. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That name Jezreel, it means God sows, as in scattering seed. He wasn't a seamstress, but as in scattering seed. Uh, it could also be interpreted as God scatters. He says, For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel in the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. As I mentioned earlier, Jehu was one of the king's of Israel. He had become one of the kings after uh, the death of wicked King Ahab. Uh, Ahab, you remember him, the Arab, the sheik of the... No, I'm sorry. That's a <laughs> Just testing if you guys were awake. Um, king Ahab, uh, he was the guy that married Jezebel. And Jezebel, of course, is a very famous uh, woman, a very wicked and famous woman in the Bible. Well, Elijah prophesied that Jehu would kill all of Ahab's male descendants. And Elisha, the, the prophet that followed Elijah, commanded Jehu to kill all of Ahab's male descendants. And it was at the city of Jezreel where Jehu followed this, followed, carried these things out. Uh, it was at the city of Jeze uh, Jezreel where Jezebel was ordered by Jehu to be thrown out of the window, if you know that story, to her death. It was also where Jehu ordered the heads of all the 72 sons of Ahab to be delivered to him. 
Jezreel was where Jehu killed all the worshipers of Baal, and he, he was pretty crafty about that. He basically said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just really go ahead and worship Baal. And so he said, I want all the worshipers of Baal to meet for this big feast, and, and, and if anyone doesn't show up, they're going to die. So, I mean, they all showed up. And then he said, he got them all into the temple of Baal. And he said, okay, now I want you to make sure that there's none of those sons, you know, none of those worshipers of the Lord God in there. Because, you know, and, and so they made sure, no, they were all worshipers of Baal. And then he told his men, go in and kill everybody. And so he totally eradicated all the Baal worshipers out of the northern kingdom. Sounds like a pretty, well, it was a bloody thing. But, I mean, it sounds like he did a lot of things. I mean, he was very zealous. Um, but... Jehu went beyond the command of the Lord. He also killed King Ahaziah, which is one of the kings of Judah. And he killed all 42 of Ahaziah's relatives. And in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 29, it describes Jehu's life as he reigned. It says, he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord. And he, listen, he continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God told Jehu that his sons would sit on the throne of Israel for four generations. Now Jeroboam, who was the king when Hosea started his ministry, um, he was the third descendant of Jehu. His son, Zechariah, became king after Jeroboam's death. So that would have been the fourth generation that God said four of your Four of your generations will sit on the throne of Israel. His reign only lasted for six months. He was assassinated by Shalem. And afterwards, there was a steady and relatively rapid decline in, the, uh, in, in who ruled on the throne. Shalem reigned only one month, and he was assassinated by Menahem. Menahem reigned for ten years, and then he just died. I don't know how he died, but he was a very cruel king, and he was actually a puppet for the king of Assyria. His son, Pekahiah, reigned for two years, and he was assassinated by Pekah. And Pekah reigned 20 years and was assassinated by Hosea. And Hosea reigned until the king of Assyria invaded Israel and took the northern ten tribes into captivity. And so, as God said, he would bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. He says, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. The bow, or the bow, I should say. The bow of Israel. That refers to, you know, a, a bow and an arrow. It refu- refers to the military strength and the power of Israel. And Israel was defeated by the Assyrian army in the valley of Jezreel. So verse 6, he says, um, And she conceived again, so they had Jezreel, she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, but by ho- or by horses or horsemen. So Lo-Ruhamah's name meant no mercy. And it was signifying that God would not have mercy on Israel any longer and that he would allow them to go into captivity. I used to know a girl when I was in junior high. Her name was Mercy. I always thought that was really a pretty name. She was a very, very nice girl, uh, extremely nice girl, sweetheart. Uh, But her name was Mercy. She wasn't one of my sweethearts, by the way. (laughs) I could clarify that. (laughs) 
But think about that. I mean, that's a pretty name, Mercy. But think about her. Every time Hosea called his daughter, whose name was No Mercy, man, he'd be reminded of God's judgment coming upon the people, upon an unfaithful Israel. And yet, it says God would have mercy on the house of Judah and save them. Well, after defeating Israel, the king of Assyria set his sights on the kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah was the king of Judah at that time. And Hezekiah was overall, for most of his life, pretty much a righteous king. He served the Lord. And uh, so the Assyrians, they came and they laid siege around Jerusalem. And Isaiah came to Hezekiah and told him, he said, Don't be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And so God's basically saying, Hey, don't worry, Hezekiah. I've got it in control. I'm going to fight your battle. It's basically what God was telling him through Isaiah. Well, the Assyrians, they had this siege around Jerusalem. And on one particular night, an angel of the Lord came and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that were surrounding Jerusalem. And Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria, he went back to Nineveh, and he was assassinated in the temple there. So all these things that the Lord had prophesied through Hosea, they actually did happen in history. Imagine that. Verse 8, Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Lo-Ami literally means not my people. And this is probably the bleakest prophecy against the kingdom of Israel. I mean, think about it. When God reaches the point where he says, That's it. I'm through. No more mercy. You're not my people. And I'm not your God. I mean, you can't get any bleaker than that. Verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Then the children of, Israel, uh, children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So God's saying, You're not my people. I'm not your God. I'm, not, I'm no longer going to have mercy on you. And yet, he gives them this wonderful promise. And the reason why is because God is faithful to his promise to bless Abraham. Remember that promise? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea. And God's faithful. And God promises here that he's going to, even though he's, he's going to do all these things, he's going to restore them. He's going to restore the nation of Israel. Now, some people believe that God is through with Israel, that he's done with them, the nation of Israel, and that the church has replaced Israel in prophecy. It's, a, it's, a, it's known as replacement theology. But God here is speaking to the nation of Israel. And some people also believe that the northern ten tribes of Israel were so scattered and so lost that they're still lost today. In fact, you might have heard of that before, the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, some people think that Great Britain is the lost tribes of Israel, and by extension, the Americans are of the lost tribe of Israel. Well, apparently, God hasn't lost them. <laughs> you know, we may have lost them, but God hasn't lost them. And he's promised to reunite them together in the physical land of Israel. 
So this prophecy, it hasn't been completed yet. It's, it's, I think it's starting to be fulfilled, but it hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. It will be completely fulfilled at the millennium when all Israel is reunited together in Israel and Jesus Christ is their head and their Lord and their Savior. So we move on to chapter 2. It says, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So here God removes the low, which in that language, low means no or not, from Ami. And he goes from calling them not my people to calling them Ami, or my people. And he removes the low from Ruama, and he goes from calling them no mercy to mercy. Now, at some point during Hosea's marriage, Gomer either returns to prostitution or she starts to begin a life of unfaithfulness and adultery and prostitution. But here, God's given, giving Hosea a vivid picture of how his heart is broken over the spiritual adultery of his people Israel. You see, Hosea was living it and experiencing it and understanding how God felt. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst." I will not have mercy on the children, on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So Gomer at some point forsook Hosea to go after her lovers. And she says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. She started passionately pursuing other men. And she was attributing all her needs. She was saying, basically, Hosea, you're not meeting my needs. These other lovers, they're meeting my needs. They're meeting my desires. Could you imagine being married to your spouse and them saying that to you? How devastating that would be. Spiritually, that's exactly what Israel did. They started passionately pursuing these false idols. You know, the Lord God was no longer meeting their needs. Their needs weren't getting met by Him, and, and He wasn't meeting their idolatries, or their, excuse me, their desires. So they were focusing on these idols to meet their needs, their, these idols to meet their desires. And these are, the, and now there's three things that the Lord declares that He's going to do to His adulterous wife, Israel. And if you read through, there's about the only place where you can really get divisions in these chapters. It begins with therefore. And so the very first therefore is verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in, so she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her her grain, her new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. God, the first thing God would do is he would put a hedge of thorns around his people to wall them in so they couldn't follow the path to their foreign lovers. So they couldn't follow the path of sin. Why does God do that? Well, because He loves His people. 
and yet he's going to allow them to get into a tight place where they encounter thorns if they try to stray. God has a God. This isn't the first time God has does this. He's done it in the Old Testament. He does it in the believer's life as well. A, a good example in the Old Testament is the is the story of Balaam. Remember Balaam, the prophet who was like the prophet for hire. He was a mercenary prophet. You know, uh, if Balak, who was the enemy of Israel, wanted to hire uh, Balaam to curse the children of Israel, and Balaam, you know, he's like, huh, money. You know, it's like, hey. I'll go to the highest bidder. And so he tried to go uh, to meet King Balak in order to get money for cursing Israel, but God hedged him in. God sent his angel to block Balaam's progress to hinder him from cursing Israel. Now, Balaam didn't realize that, his, his, that he was getting hedged in. All what he knew was this donkey that he was driving on. You know, he was riding on his donkey. This donkey kept stopping. This donkey was like being stubborn like a regular donkey, you know, not wanting to go. And, and uh, so Balaam was getting really frustrated. Well, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord with a flaming sword. And the donkey didn't want to get killed. You know, the donkey's like, whoa, you know, so the donkey's backing up. Well, he kept backing up. He kept, you know, going to the other way. And, and Balaam's getting so frustrated. It's like, what's going on? This thing's, you stupid donkey, you know, when he would hit the donkey. And uh, at one point, they were walking between a, a wall, a really narrow place. And the donkey again saw this angel of the Lord with the flaming sword. And so the donkey started backing up and uh, Balaam started beating on the donkey. Well, the donkey backed up to a point. It was so tight that Balaam's foot was crushed against the wall. I mean, he was getting hedged in. It was painful. He was trying to go forward and God wasn't letting him happen. And it was causing him pain. And, of course, then you know the story. The, the donkey starts speaking to Balaam, and Balaam starts arguing with the donkey. It was kind of an interesting story, but that was one example. Another example was Israel during the time of the judges, and there's a lot of examples there. Every time the Israelites turned away from the Lord and they started following their own paths and started following down the paths of sin, God would allow their enemies to overtake them, and uh, He would make their lives miserable. And then they would become so miserable, they'd cry out to the Lord, and then he would send them judges to deliver them. You see, God loves you and I so much that if we choose to turn from him and to pursue idols, he's going to allow our paths to become difficult. He's going to allow things to occur to prevent us from going too far. And if we stubbornly press on, not only are we going to get scraped up, we're going to get bruised and, and hurt from all these thorns and all these difficulties that we keep pressing on through, but sometimes he's going to let us hit right up into a, a wall. You can't go any further. And sometimes, you know, when that, those things happen in our lives, we think, man, God's forsaken us. Or God's trying to destroy us. You know, we encounter these thorns in our path. Why is God allowing this? Well, God is allowing this because He's wanting us to realize that we've wandered away from Him and He wants to draw us back to Him to cause us to return to Him. I like what this commentary, JFB, says. It's a Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary. It says, Restraining grace and restraining providences even sicknesses and trials are great blessings when they stop us in a course of sin. Now we're heading headlong in the wrong way, and, and God, you know, he, he prevents it. He, he's trying to stop us. Well, God would allow things to become so miserable for Israel that what they pursued would become elusive. They're trying to gain satisfaction from these idols, and God says, you're going to pursue them, but I'm not going to let you get them. 
And, and it, they're going to end up becoming so empty and so dissatisfied, and eventually they're going to want to return to the Lord. Verse 8 says, For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Now the name Baal, it literally means Lord. Of course, it's a pagan Lord. And so these people of Israel, they were worshiping other lords rather than the Lord God. And think about it. God had provided material blessings for Israel. God had blessed them, and they turned around, and they were spent it on pursuing their lords, their idols. You know, when God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, it's a very interesting story. Before they left Egypt, God gave them favor with the Egyptians. Did you know that? And so they asked of the Egyptians, and the Egyptian people, the people of Egypt, gave them gold, earrings, jewelry, gold cups, gave them all sorts of gold, gave them articles of silver, gave them clothing. They just basically, they just gave all this stuff to the children of Israel. And God, through doing that, plundered Egypt and blessed Israel. In fact, it wasn't too many years ago that somebody in Egypt said, hey, we need to sue Israel for reparations because of this story. Because they plundered us. They need to pay us back. Literally, that's a true story. They've actually, that was a couple years ago in the news. Well, God plundered the Egyptians and blessed the children of Israel with all these material blessings. But you know what? It wasn't too long before at Mount Sinai in the wilderness, the children of Israel, they started playing the harlot with idols. And you guys remember the story. They wanted Aaron to make them an idol to worship. And what did Aaron say? Hey, give me your jewelry. Give me your gold. I'll melt it down, and I'll make an idol for you. And so they took the gold that God had blessed them with, and they melted it down, and they made a gold calf for them to worship. They took what God had given to them, and they spent it on worshiping their idols. Now, it would be as if Hosea had continued to bless Gomer with her material needs, even buying her gifts and presents, only to have her spend only for her to only to have her spend it on her lovers. If you can imagine how that would have felt for Hosea, it gives you an idea how God feels every time the things that He's given you and I, the things that He's blessed us with, time, talent, treasure, and we turn it around in the pursuit of our idols. It's the same thing. That's how God feels. It's a shame when you see these very, very talented entertainers. You know, God has blessed them with this tremendous talent, and they go and they use it to blaspheme His name. They go to use it to, you know, drawing people to sin. And it's just, it's terrible. That's how God feels. I, I've given you this, and you're squandering. You're, you're spending it on other, other lovers, other idols. Well, the next thing God would do, verse 9, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. You know, the northern kingdom of Israel had enjoyed great 
prosperity under Jeroboam the two or Jeroboam the second. You know, military success. They had experienced increase, but Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he continued in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And the people of the kingdom of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the kingdom, it went from prosperity into decline. And God took away their prosperity. Back in verse 5, notice she says, uh, she called it my bread, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, my drink. But here God says, hey, I'm taking away my grain, my new wine, my wool, and my linen. God said, it's mine. I've given it to you, but I'm taking it back now. God would expose her lewdness. She would be left naked and in shame. Paul wrote this in Timothy. 1 Timothy 5, 24, he says, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. You know, some people, their sins remain hidden, and they seem to be prospering. But what are they doing? They're sowing to the wind. And sooner or later, they're going to reap the whirlwind. Sooner or later, God's going to expose it, and they're going to be naked and, and, and exposed and ashamed. He says, I will also cause her mirth to cease, her free feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. Now, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first king, not only did he set up two idols, but he also set up feast days just like the feast days of Israel, only they were for his people to sacrifice to the golden calves at Dan and Bethel instead of going down to Jerusalem. And so the people, they had this mixture of not only false worship, but, and, you know, but they also had this external formal worship of the Lord that they really didn't, their hearts weren't in it. They weren't seeking the Lord. And so God's going to strip away their joy so that they won't even be able to do these outer uh, rituals. Everything basically that God had blessed them with, he's now going to strip away from them. And it's because he's hoping that they're going to see the futility of their way and repent and return to him. God's doing this because he's pursuing them. The last thing he would do, verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things on the ground." Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had obtained, who had no, who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So after God hedged in unfaithful Israel, after he had removed his blessing from her, 
in his amazing love now, he would allure her back to him, speaking words of comfort to her. Verse 14 could very well be a reference to Revelation 12, verses 6 through 17. In Revelation 12, we read of the great tribulation, that seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's going to start out very prosperous for Israel. They're going to finally have a peace treaty uh, with, that's going to allow them, basically, to build, rebuild their temple. But midway through that seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to break the treaty, and he's going to blasphemously if I pronounce it right, blasphemously, proclaim himself God, and he's going to demand the, the entire world worship him. And the Bible says in Revelation 12, at that time, Satan's fury is going to be unleashed against Israel. But God's going to miraculously deliver the remnant of the Israelites that are alive in that time, and he's going to hide them in the wilderness. And many people believe that that's in the rock city of Petra in the nation of Jordan. There's different prophecies that allude to this event. Let me read one to you. It's in Isaiah 26, verse 20. It says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So verse 14 it seems to be a picture of that time when, the God, when the, God's going to miraculously hide the children of Israel in the wilderness at the time of this great tribulation. Verse 15 talks about the valley of Achor is going to be turned into a door of hope. What was the valley of Achor? Well, it's also known as the valley of trouble. And that was where Achan, if you remember the story, when the children of Israel were told to go and you know, they surround Jericho and, and the walls came tumbling down. And, and God says, don't take anything. Don't take any spoil from the land there. And yet there was one guy by the name of Achan who is just too tempting to him. He took some of the spoils and he hid it. And then the next time they tried to go into battle and God allowed them to be defeated in battle. And Joshua was like, why are you doing this, Lord? And God says, because there's sin in the camp. Get that sin out. Get rid of it. And so they, they brought all the children of Israel uh, together before the Lord. And, of course, Achan's family was called out. And pretty soon Achan was called out. And uh, you know the story. The, the earth swallowed him up, basically. So when Israel returns from hiding in the wilderness, it sounds like they're going to be returning via the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble near Jericho. And, uh, but now it's going to be the door of hope. And instead of the valley of trouble, now it's going to be the door of hope. They're going to be singing and worshiping the Lord, just like the time when the children of Israel entered into the promised land when Joshua is leading them in. It's going to be a, just a joyful time for them. Verse 16 says, They will no longer call their Lord uh, their master, or Bailey, but Ishi, which is my husband. They're no longer going to call God my master. That relationship's going to change. It's going to be a change to that relationship of, of intimacy for the children of Israel. Verse 18, uh, you know, in verse 18, during the millennium, God's going to once more restore the animal kingdom to how they were before Adam's sin. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? In Isaiah 11, verse 8, it says, The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. The animal kingdom, once more, it's going to be basically like it was 
at the time before Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. It says, God will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and they will lie down safely. And, you know, it's amazing. Every president that we have in every administration tries to bring peace to the Middle East. And somehow they think they're going to achieve it. And there will never be peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace brings true peace to the Middle East. And the Prince of Peace is going to finally bring world peace. I believe this is a picture of that. Verse 19 and 20, it says, And all Israel will be restored to the Lord. Paul says the same thing in Romans eleven twenty six when he says, All Israel will be saved. So at some point, Gomer had left Hosea for her lovers. And just as God, who was forsaken by Israel, uh, is going to pursue her and bring her back to him, God now instructs Hosea in chapter 3 to pursue Gomer, his unfaithful wife, and bring Gomer home and restore her to him. I mean, it would have been hard enough to marry a prostitute in the first place. But then she went ahead and she continued or she started going into prostitution, however you want to look at that scripture. And now God says, hey, I I want you to lure her back. I want you to bring her back and restore her. How difficult would that be? Chapter 3, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. How hard that must have been for Hosea. And yet that reveals God's great love for any people that he loves that have turned away from him. Second Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, and how many of us have been faithless? It says, He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Verse 2 of Hosea 3, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Now, if you go in the Bible and you go into Exodus 21.32, the price for a slave was 30 shekels. So Gomer was not only, wasn't even, I mean, she was worth about half the price of a slave. It gives you an idea of the depth of the depravity, how low she had sunk down to in her rebellion and in her, in her unfaithfulness. Hosea, you know, didn't have to buy her after all. She was his wife, albeit that she turned to, to prostitution. But it shows his willingness to stoop down and go the extra mile to purchase her for the price, basically, of a cheap prostitute. And just to redeem him, just to redeem her to himself. Talk about that great love, stooping down into the muck and the mire to pick a person up. Verse 3, And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. You are to stay here, basically, Hosea says with me, many days, don't play the harlot, don't go after other men, I'll be faithful to you for many days. Basically, he's putting in her, he's basically saying, I'm, I'm taking you in, stay with me, don't, don't stray for many days, don't stray, just, just be here with me. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Those many days there in verse 4, they've continued now for 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years. 
Israel's been without a king since their captivity, both the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity of Judah. They've been without their temple and without the sacrifices. When the children of Israel, excuse me, when the children of Judah, because the children of Israel, we don't know when they came back. That's why there's that theory about the lost tribes of Israel. But when the children of Judah returned from their captivity, because it was only a few hundred, maybe a hundred years later or so, that they started doing the exact same thing that Israel did, and God gave them up and allowed them to go into captivity. When they returned from their captivity as a nation, the worship of Baal and the worship of those other idols completely ceased. They finally gave up their idols, and they were faithful. And after those many days, the children of Israel are going to return. And I believe that's speaking about at the end of the tribulation. They're going to see the Lord. They're going to recognize Jesus. And they're going to recognize Him as being their Messiah, the Son of David. What a beautiful promise of the restoration of Israel, God's chosen people, in the millennium reign of Christ on, you know, on earth. Hosea, though, and he learned this firsthand. I mean, he learned that great love of God for Israel. You know, God loved Israel, and they were an adulteress. They were spiritually adulterous. They were a wayward wife. And yet God had this great love for her. And Hosea, the prophet, man, he had to live it. He had to, he had to experience it. Why? Because God wanted him to have that passion as he's prophesying to his people. What a difficult thing that would have been. Remember, we were going through Ezekiel. Ezekiel had to do lots of things that were very difficult for Ezekiel because God wanted him to have the heart and to understand the heart of the Lord. This is a great picture here, too, of the great love of Christ for you and I. Sometimes he hedges us in when we're going the wrong direction. Sometimes he allows things to be stripped away from, from us, especially anything that's not of him. And he pursues us. You know, I remember a time when I, you know, walked away from the Lord, and, and it was when I rededicated my life to the Lord. When that happened, I was not seeking God. In fact, I was running away from God. I didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. I was going the entire opposite direction. And God kept bringing people in, into my path who were Christians who were testifying to me and, and speaking to me. And, and God was wooing me back to him, and, and it worked. I, I, I finally gave up. I said, you know what? I'm pursuing the world, and I'm miserable because I'm not getting what I'm finding what I'm seeking after. Lord, I've been so foolish. Please, I repent. Please restore me. And he did because he loves us. And he'll do the same thing for each one of us because of his great love for us. You know, pursuing us, stooping down to redeem you and I. You know, it doesn't matter what you and I have done. It doesn't matter how low you've sunk. Jesus Christ loves you so much. He's willing to stoop down there in the muck and the mire with you and to, and to pick you up and to clean you off and to bring you and to restore you to him. What a beautiful picture of restoration we see here. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, just this, this really vivid picture that we have, the love of a, of a husband who's been forsaken, the great love that he has for his wife, for his bride, that he would do anything to restore her back to him. And Lord, what a picture that is of your great love for us. Father, we are just like Gomer, Lord. We are so worthless. We've been so unfaithful. And yet, Lord God, because of your great love, you've come, you've stooped down, and you've redeemed us out of our muck and mire that we've found ourselves in. And Lord, all we can say is we thank you and we love you, Lord. 
And so this morning, Lord, I just thank you for this beautiful picture, Lord. And I pray that we might be encouraged by that great love that you have for us and that we would respond in return to your love, Lord. And so we thank you and we bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.